Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, series two, episode five. In the show, we like to visit the places of your Irish ancestors and bring their stories to life. Before we start, do remember any resources or references we mention in the episode can be found in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 205. We're going to have some fun in today's show as we introduce you to some new voices and let you glimpse behind the scenes of our enterprise on A Letter from Ireland and our very special green room. It all began in June 2013. We sent out our very first Letter from Ireland. One year later, we established the green room, a place where people of shared Irish heritage could come to break down some of those ancestry brick walls. However, over time, the green room proved to be a gathering place for people who had a whole lot more on their mind than just breaking down ancestry walls. The green room has become a place where we share stories and questions, meetups and many more ways of connecting all the aspects of our shared Irish heritage. So we decided to put together of Voices from the Green Room podcast for you. In it, we share with you some of the wonderful stories that have been written in the Green Room over the past three or four years. It could be many hundreds of pages long, and deciding which posts to pick was very difficult, but you know where to go if you'd like to read some more. The Green Room, of course. Originally, we felt that we should, you know, divide into themes and sections, but then we said, what the hell? Let's provide a happy, lucky bag dip of stories, memoirs, trips and reports, the odd joke or two, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing them. So we will be listening to some members of the Green Room who popped in to read some of their own favourite stories and posts. We hear from Simon O'Flynn from Cork City, Ireland, Courtney Bain, originally from the US, now living in Ireland, and Mike Collins, who together with myself, Karina Collins, bring it all together on that lettertromireland.com. Simon's going to be up first. His writings and posts are very familiar to those in the green room, where he keeps us entertained with his quirky look on life. Simon, you're very welcome to our Letter from Ireland show, and I believe your first story is touching on a local subject dear to the heart of all Carconians, a wonderful old bridge that crosses our own River Lee. Thanks for coming in and start away in your own time, Simon. Crossing the Lee. As I speak, Cork City is in the grip of a major controversy. In a former post, I mentioned that 22 bridges cross the River Lee as it flows through the city. One of our bridges is the subject of this controversy. The bridge in question is called the John Daly Bridge. This suspension bridge connects the leafy suburbs of Sundayswell, home of the Merchant Princess, on the north side of the city to the beautiful recreational Fitzgerald's Park on the south side. Mr. Daly was one of the Merchant Princes at the time and largely funded the building of the bridge, hence the name. 
The bridge was opened to the public in 1927, and almost from the day it opened, Carconians called it the Shaky Bridge because of its tendency to move. Every child in Cork remembers the first time they felt this flimsy structure respond to their own movement. I remember the excitement feeling the movement for the first time as I ran across the bridge many years ago. As it quivered, suspended 40 feet above the river. I remember the wonder of my children's faces as they crossed the bridge. Last month on a windy day, I brought my grandchildren to enjoy this local pressure. Now, our city fathers have announced that they intend refurbishing the structure. The work they tell us will strengthen the bridge and stop it from shaking. No. I'm all for health and safety and fully understand that maintenance is a need in such a structure. However, to deprive us of this simple pressure seems a great shame, especially at the cost of half a million euros. You could say that I'm almost shaking with rage. Well, we're off to a flying start. And now we are indeed going to take off from the ground and fly into the clouds for our next post from the Green Room, read by Mike Collins, who, as many of you know, writes the letter from Ireland each Sunday. So the shoe is on the other foot now, as they say, as Mike reads another of Simon's popular posts from the Green Room. Over to you, Mike. Raindrops and daffodils. Many Green Room members have visited Ireland in the past. Others are coming for their first visit this year, and more are planning a holiday in the not-so-distant future. Most are coming to see family and retrace their ancestry. Nowadays, almost everyone has a camera of some sort and is always on the lookout for a memorable photo. In Ireland, good snaps are not that hard to find. Our mountains, lakes, rivers, colourful villages and coastline, and also our long-lost relatives are all worth a shot. However, There is one part of our scenery that often gets less attention, our constantly changing skies. Before we had a Met Department broadcasting weather forecasts every hour, our ancestors depended on the sky to plan their lives. When to plant and harvest crops, when to make a journey, when to shelter livestock, all were dependent on the weather. The old saying, a red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning, and a red sky at night is a shepherd's delight, is as true today as it was long ago. So, when recording your trip to your ancestral home, why not take time to look at our skyscape? See the white fluffy cumulus, bringing sunshine and showers, or the high billowing clouds, also known as colonimbus, that bring heavy rain or even hail to refresh our rivers. The low grey cloud, which makes for a moist soft day, log bug, and a cloud that settles on the mountains, or a graphic. They all make wonderful photos. Now I have a special interest in clouds. For the last 30 years, I've been privileged to be the holder of a PPL, that is a private pilot license. I've clocked over 1,000 hours piloting a Cessna 172 to all parts of Ireland, but mostly along the south coast. I've flown over, under and through the clouds, 
and never tire of their changing moods. On May the 1st this year, 2016, I decided to retire from flying and to give more time to other interests. However, I'll never cease to look up and wonder at the marvel of our unique Irish skies. Simon O'Flynn, Cork, Ireland. Thanks, Mike, but we won't let you go just yet, as you are now going to read, I believe, another of Simon's posts called Kith and Kin. This next story is from Simon O'Flynn of Cork in Ireland, and it's called Kith and Kin. The story of one's ancestry is one of the most interesting, informative and rewarding of pursuits. The journey it takes you on is every bit as enjoyable or frustrating as the result itself. Those of Irish origin must surely agree that the green room is the most efficient and educational way to pursue this journey. To discover even the smallest detail adds to the overall story of your family history. To know your family background is to know yourself better. Put another way, it's a journey of self-discovery. So, take pity on me. Let me explain. As you already probably guessed, I'm Irish. Most, if not all, of my forebearers, and now their offspring, come from the Munster area and still live here. Being good Irish Catholics, they all seem to have had large families. My uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces and their children and grandchildren all still live nearby. Now you may think that living on this wonderful green island, surrounded by one's nearest and dearest, is an idyllic way to live, but it does have its snags. At family gatherings such as weddings and funerals, etc., things can get interesting. You're surrounded by people that share the same gene pool as yourself, but now are unrecognisable. The ladies of all ages are now blonde, and the men are now all bald. As for names, well, I found myself in deep conversation about serious family matters with someone I did not know or couldn't recognise, and certainly did not remember their name. Weddings can be particularly harrowing. Everybody is dressed in their finest, it's supposed to be a joyful occasion, and what with toasting a happy couple and others, everybody gets very chatty. At a recent wedding, as I wandered about dutifully chatting to my extended family, my wife whispered to me, you're getting to look very like your brother John. Oh no. Funerals can be just as trying. At least at a wedding guests have been invited, but at a funeral all can come, even your enemies. As you know, the Irish wake is still an important part of the funeral ritual. The dress code is all black and everyone shakes hands and commiserates with the family of the bereaved as they pass the open coffin. Again, at these sad occasions, I fail to recognise most of my own kith and kin. I half expect someday to hear someone whisper in my ear, you're getting to look very much like the corpse. Most days, I journey past the house my grandfather lived in when he first arrived in Cork. I also know the farm where he was born in Limerick. My other grandfather, I bear his name, lived a short distance from where I live now. He was not the greatest provider, so moving house about the same area was a fixture of his family life. As I get older, I'm getting ever closer to becoming the godfather of this mafia. Living amongst your ancestors has its drawbacks, but to be honest, I enjoy every bit of it and would not change a thing. Simon O'Flynn, Cork, Ireland.
And now it's the turn of the ladies. Courtney Bain, who is an important part of the team here, has dropped by to read some of her favourite posts on our Voices from the Green Room show. Her first choice comes from the USA and was written by Lynn Wilson-Stola. Thanks for being with us here, Courtney. Delighted to read some of the posts from the Green Room today. More than a name. It has been a year since I have been searching my Wilson ancestors and along the way, enjoying the knowledge of early Pittsburgh and learning more about Ireland. I didn't tell you before, but years ago, my husband and I went to an ancient order of Hibernians, St. Patrick's Shindig in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And I ended up winning the grand prize, a round trip to Ireland for two, airfare. We went and stayed three weeks, but only got a smidgen into Northern Ireland. It was marching season, and we were advised to stay away. But what an incredible experience. Now back to my message. Not having a lot of success the easy way with my heritage, I have been Googling like mad, and that's when I found a letter from Ireland. What a find your site was, I might add. Then I took advantage of your lifetime membership in the green room, and so starts a new chapter in my searching. One day, two weeks ago, I just started writing down what I felt was so special and important to me about this journey, and I kept tweaking the poem until this past week. I'd like to share it with you now. More than a name. Searching for ancestors, looking for clues, uncover the mysteries of ancestors' lives, unravel the threads, connect the links. Each quest can be difficult, the reward so sweet. Along the journey, discover new relatives, forge new connections, ask for advice, dismiss the impossible, Embrace the potential of records, certificates, and gravestone inscriptions. Try a new lead. Wrap up loose ends. Learn the history of lands far away. Searching for ancestors, their journeys, their dreams. Create a picture, not just a name. Thank you, Lynn Wilson-Stola from Pennsylvania. Ancestral journeys back home to Ireland are a big part of what we share in the green room. And here Courtney tells us of one such journey. We love when a member from the green room writes in to share about a memorable journey they had to their ancestral homeland. Galway to Mayo and beyond, a traveler's tale. Hi folks, what a road trip. Well, where do I start? Basically by saying, I had a whale of a time. I managed to visit so many more places than I'd planned, and no matter where I ended up, I found the locals very friendly and welcoming. I had the pleasure of visiting the following. Day 1. Tubbercurry, County Sligo. My one-night stay at Murphy's Hotel was an excellent start to my vacation. The evening meal was excellent, and a hearty Irish breakfast in the morning set me up for my drive to our self-catering accommodation in Glenamati, County Galway. This was our base for eight nights, which I found to be pretty central for accessing all areas of Galway and the surrounding counties of Roscommon and Mayo. Day two, Balneslow was about a 20 to 30 minute drive, which brought me to the hometown of my great grandmother. There's plenty to do in the second largest town in Galway. Although I was on a particular mission, Firstly, I visited St. Michael's Church, where my 
Noon and Naughton ancestors were baptized, married, and no doubt were laid to rest. The chapel and its grounds were beautiful. From there I made my way to Brackenar Street, where my great-grandmother lived. There were still houses that were dated from the time that she'd lived there, and just being there was a wonderful experience. Day three, Athen Rye. What a magical place it is, with its medieval town wall, castle, and priory. My kids loved it. Among the ancient attractions, a visitor will find some modern contemporary art pieces, such as the Winged Horse sculpture by Connor Fallon, in honor of his poet father, Parag Fallon, 1905 to 1974. It was unveiled in 1992 by Seamus Heaney, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. A personal favorite of mine was the wrought iron park benches dotted about the place. They wouldn't be out of place in a fairy kingdom, or maybe even Game of Thrones. Very nice indeed. Day four, Galway City. Woof, what a place. I spent a full day and it was not enough. If you're going and really want to see the place, I'd recommend three days minimum. In saying that, I managed to cram in a lot of the attractions, such as Galway Cathedral, Ayer Square, Kerwin's Lane in the Latin Corner, and the Spanish Arch, Lynch's Castle, now a bank, and the Lynch Memorial Window, which commemorates an unfortunate event there when the then-Mayor James Lynch Fitzstephen hanged his son for murder in 1493. The term Lynch Law apparently arose from this. Yep, there's plenty to do and see in this quaint but bustling city. A really fantastic place. Day 5 and 6, I ventured into County Mayo. First up to Westport, a fabulous place. It's got to be one of Ireland's prettiest towns. I took in Westport House, which was the ancestral seat of the Marquis of Sligo. It's a fascinating place, packed with history, art, and antiques. It also boasts a 16th century pirate queen, Grace O'Malley. For the kids, there was the dungeons and a pirate adventure park. Among its attractions were dodging carts, zip wire slides, archery, pedalo swan boat rides, cafe, and more. Afterwards, I took in the wonderfully scenic Clue Bay and visited the National Famine Monument, which is located at the foot of Crowpatrick. A site of pagan pilgrimage for the summer solstice, but now a site of Christian pilgrimage associated with St. Patrick. The monument depicts a coffin ship with skeletal figures for the rigging. It's a dramatic piece of work, and for me I found it somber and thought-provoking. A must-see. The following day I took my mother to visit her ancestral home, Balnarrow. To be honest, I thought the town centre could have done with a wee scrub-up, a lick of paint, and some flowers. Maybe I'm being unfair. I'd probably just be spoiled with all the beauty I'd seen to date. But as per usual, the people were great, and the surrounding area was very scenic. We had a very nice lunch in town, and a wee stroll around the graveyard, searching for some of our Baines and Moran ancestors. On day seven, Roscommon. I had a nosy around the town, took the kids to the swimming baths, and then treated them to fish and chips. Delish. Afterwards, we visited Stokestown and took in the National Famine Museum. Just my opinion, but I thought it was a bit pricey. Mind you, I had my four kids, wife and mother in tow. A stroll around the gardens is free, though. On the way back to Glanamati, we stopped off at a spot in the River Suck 
in Castle Coote, which was a trout sanctuary. There was strictly catch-and-release policy in place to help preserve, increase, and establish a healthy stock of wild trout. I think this is a great thing, but unfortunately probably a necessary thing to do. Anyway, the sun was splitting the sky and the surrounding flowers were so colorful and vibrant. It really was a relaxing, peaceful end to a great day. On day eight, it was back to County Mayo and the awesome village of Kong. This was our hottest day to date. Glorious sunshine framed the most wonderful of settings. A truly beautiful place, timeless. You know, I wouldn't have been shocked if Maureen O'Hara herself had popped out of a clearing, tending her sheep with that red hair of hers, burning like a wildfire in the sunshine. I think I'm getting carried away. But of course I had to visit the Quiet Man Museum and take a stroll along the film locations. And yes, I did have the obligatory photos taken with a statue of Big Sean Torton and Mary-Kate Donaher. We did some more sightseeing around the grounds of the Abbey and the Monk's Fishing House. Then we had some lunch before enjoying some drinks outside Pat Cohen's pub. It was a fitting end to our time in Galway, Mayo, and Roscommon. Next stop on our travels, four nights in Donegal. On day one, the road trip to Donegal was as enjoyable as the rest of my holiday to date. The weather was grand, which always helps. We passed through various places and chose to stop off twice. Firstly, Boyle in County Roscommon. This was just to grab a quick refreshment, but the impressive Boyle Abbey lured us in. We just had to visit. The admission prices were very good, and we were handed a leaflet, which was a self-guided tour, which took about an hour. I've spent a worse hour. It really was very interesting indeed. Moving on, our next stop was just outside Sligo and a visit to the grave of the renowned poet William Butler Yeats in St. Columbus Church in Drumcliff. From there, I made a short trip across the road to an open-air market where I purchased some strawberries and baby potatoes. I would have definitely brought some of the freshly caught fish on display had I not had the long journey ahead. My mother loves place, and the wee lady was selling them at one euro a fish. Ah, well, maybe I'll catch her next time. Next stop, Donegal. I had booked a self-catering cottage for the next four nights in the rural village of Clong, which boasts one of the most prolific wild salmon and sea trout fishing areas in Ireland. Not that I was there for the fishing. My wife has family in Ballyboffy, which is only about six miles away. So it was great to catch up with them again for a good old shindig. By the way, Clogan has a very nice little garden center with some lovely things on sale and boasts a nice wee house cafe too. The following morning we visited Donegal Town and the weather had changed. It was lashing down, but it would take more than the weather to dampen our holiday. We toured Donegal Castle and paid my respects to Red Hugh O'Donnell, who led a rebellion in 1593 against English government in Ireland. His statue stands proudly on Donegal Pier. Afterwards, we did some shopping in McGee of Donegal Department Store, where I treated my wife to a new jacket. The quality of their clothing and homeware is fabulous. Later, we had a fine meal in the Old Castle Bar, and then we were on the way back to Clockton. Just on the outskirts of town, we stopped at a famine graveyard. There's a signpost marking it. It's just down the hill as you leave the town. Always saddens me when I come across them. I always stop and pay my respects. 
There is an inscription on the memorial stone which reads, In loving memory of those who died of hunger and disease in the great famine of 1845 to 1848 and were buried in this cemetery. On day three, we were off to Letterkenny. No improvement in the weather, but our holiday just kept rolling on regardless. Coffee, tea, and more coffee was the order of the day as we popped in and out of cafes to keep out of the rain. The kids were treated to a toy each, but only after we set off on a wild goose chase. We saw a sign for Tinny's Toys, and it was off the beaten track down a few country roads. I really should have known better. When we finally got there, it wasn't children's toys at all, but farming machinery. We went back into town and the kids got their toys. Later that evening back at the ranch, I checked online and found out Tinny's Toys actually did sell miniature toys, model tractors and combine harvesters. Might have been okay for my boys, but not for the two girls. They wouldn't have been impressed. Day four. On our final day in Donegal, the beach was the plan, but the weather remained wet. So we traveled to Derry, where we visited the Derry Craft Village. This is a must-see, tucked away in the heart of the city within the Great Walls. It offers a mix of craft shops. My wife recommends a shop called Blue Moon, where she purchased a wooden wall plaque with the Celtic Tree of Life engraved on it. She also purchased a St. Bridget's Cross. Restaurant and coffee shops, it's a magical place. To celebrate our last night, we took ourselves off to a quite brilliant Chinese restaurant located on the waterfront, the Mandarin Palace. It really was superb Asian cuisine. Well, folks, that was just about it. I did my best to keep it short. There's so much more to tell. My journey was almost at an end. We traveled to Belfast and had some lunch with my father before the ferry home to Glasgow. You know, when I arrived in Ireland, it's like coming home. I always leave with a heavy heart, but it's only for a short while. My departing thoughts are always happy ones. The beautifully manicured towns and villages, the overall cleanliness of the place. It's all too apparent that the Irish Tourist Board's Tidy Towns Initiative has been a rip-roaring success. In fact, this year marked the 25th anniversary of Tidy Towns sponsors Supervalue, who also deserve a special mention. Supervalue is our local shop of choice. It offered quality local produce at affordable prices. But talking of food, there's plenty of markets and pop-up stalls across the country bringing fresh fruits and veg, meat and fish to the public at unbelievable prices. I was pleasantly surprised, as I thought it would have been much more expensive than it was. Ireland offers travelers like me everything I could wish to find. The people make Ireland, but I also found a rich history my ancestors, and plenty of amenities, attractions, and pubs, too. Oh, and let's not forget the flowers. Until next time. Thank you, Joe McLeany of Glasgow, Scotland. Next, we have a letter that was very popular when posted in the green room, and I know many of our members found it helpful in their own ancestral journeys, Have a listen and see if there are any hints and tips maybe that you might find helpful in your own ancestral journey. This next voice we really wanted to share because it has some great helpful tips for those of you out there who are dreaming of walking where your ancestors lived. Walking where they lived. One goal of my just concluding trip to Ireland 
was to go to the property where my ancestors lived. As I have ancestors spread widely over five counties, my ultimate success would have been seven such walks. I got to three and would have made it to the fourth if I hadn't run out of time. I'll get to them the next trip. Here is what went right, which I share in the vein of tips. Tip number one. Second great-grandfather, Daniel, Daniel Ahern, born 1816, in Gertroch, Bali Cork, isn't on any of the online Griffith valuation records that I could find. But the cancelled revision books at the valuation office in Dublin show very clearly, through their year-by-year color-coded revisions, exactly where he lived. The very helpful staff at the valuation office then printed out for me the relevant portion of the Townland map, which in conjunction with the maps on townlands.ie was my key to getting to the right place. Tip number two. Similar story for second great-grandfather Patrick Joyce, who lived in Derry Inver, Balanakil, Galway, from the 1860s through the late 1880s. Tip number three. Third great-grandfather John Rourke in County Meath was trickier, having died by the 1840s pre-Griffiths. I could find his name, but not physically place him via the tithe applotments. Then I got lucky. At a shop in the county library in Navan, their local studies expert showed me a map from the 1820s with occupants' names and locations. What good fortune. Tip number four. At Prony, I found the lease that my fourth great-grandfather, John Bryson, signed in 1812 with enough detail that I think I can locate the spot. That's the one where I ran out of time. Major lessons learned. You've heard before, but worth repeating. Ask anyone and everyone for help. From here, Courtney and Jane were of huge assistance. I also got almost universal positive responses from librarians, archivists, parish priests, parish secretaries, and just about anyone else whom I approached. Acknowledge that the online world, as much as it has improved in recent years, is by itself not enough. And acknowledge, this is the one that I have trouble with, that at some point there just won't be much else left to find. What a great time I had doing this. I'll share another kind of success in a future post, but this is enough for now. Thank you, Jay Shaughnessy of Pennsylvania. Up next is another post by a friend of ours in the green room. And in this voice from the green room, we will have Podrick Marquitter, who is from Belfast, and he talks to us a little bit about his own hometown and particularly the area where he himself is familiar with in Belfast. Belfast, he calls it in Irish, Bale Ferishta. So you might hear me read Bale Ferishta a little bit throughout the story, and that means Belfast. So the name of the title of our post is Boher na Bale Ferishta, which is Belfast Road. Boher na Bale Ferishta. I usually write about football and hurling on this site, but I've been asked by a few to write a bit about my hometown, which is Bale Ferishta, Belfast. Many books, some very bad, have been written about the city, 
and to do it justice, I would also need to write a book, but that would take far too long. And anyway, I'm in the process of writing a book, yes, two years plus later. I will write about a small part of the city, so I hope you don't think I'm being too parochial here in this post. Bailfarishta, Belfast, is famous for a number of things, but mainly the politics, and especially politics since 1969. At one time, Bailfarishta had the biggest shipyard, Harland and Wolf, the biggest rope works, Sirocco, and the biggest tobacco factory, Gallagher's, in the world. These industries were owned by unionists and the majority of the workers were Protestants. Many of those workers came from one of the famous roads in the city, the Shankill, from the Gaelic Shankill, meaning Old Church. Shankill. The other famous road which runs parallel to the Shankill is the Falls Road, Bohernaval, and it was the complete opposite of the Shankill. Here there was high unemployment, mainly among the Catholic population. The main industries were linen mills, but very few men worked in them, so it wasn't unusual for the men to go to Scotland and England for work. Because there is so much to write about the falls, I'll concentrate on a short part of which was known in recent years as the Gaeltacht Quarter. This is because there has been a big rise in the use of Ontanga, or the Irish language, with the street names and many of the shops and small businesses now having bilingual signs. Although we are all very positive, we are unfortunately up against others who are totally opposed to the Irish or Gaeliga, and they will refuse to give it the recognition it deserves. So if anybody sent a letter to an address in Irish, in Gaeliga, it wouldn't be delivered. If someone wanted to do business, with the odd exception just of one or two banks, in Irish, the business wouldn't be done. These are just two examples. Despite all of this, on Kulturlan, which is a nice big red brick building, and other shops, pubs and cafes are thriving. At one time, on Kulturlan building was a Protestant church, but as the congregation numbers dwindled, and definitely not intimidated by locals as some claim, the church fell into disrepair. In the late 1980s, an Irish language group rented the building and one of the first things they did was to set up a man skull, that means a secondary or high school, in one of the rooms upstairs. The first class had 10 pupils who'd been taught in local Bonskullina, that's Irish primary schools, and some of these pupils then became teachers themselves and are now teaching in Kolosta Ferrista, that's Belfast College, the building right up on the hill. This is now the biggest secondary school in Ireland, and it has almost 700 pupils attending. I should say one of the biggest. We have some very big secondary schools in Ireland. Of course, Bailfarishta, Belfast, is famous for its murals, and many visitors of the city are seen taking photos of them. I have included two of them here in the posts. Unfortunately, you can't see them. One of them is of Pat Finucan, who was a friend and solicitor, and he was shot dead in March 1988 by a loyalist gang. I was in prison when it happened, and of course I was devastated when the news reached me. 
A statue of James Connolly can be seen in the foreground, and the reason for many of us being so attached to Connolly, apart from his writings and his politics, was because he himself was heavily involved in the trade union movement in Belfast, and he lived a short distance from where the statue was erected. In fact, his wife and most of his family lived in the house at the outbreak of the Easter Rising, which brings me to the Iria Machnakoska, meaning Easter Rising, and there is another mural of this. It is a copy of a painting done by Robert Bala, the famous artist who designed, among other things, the Punt, which is our currency, before the euro in the 26 counties. Last but not least, Belfast Bailferishta is also famous for the black taxis. They are a public form of transport on both the Falls and the Shankill roads, but they are in no way connected. The taxis came into use in the early 1970s when Belfast Corporation, who owned the buses, took them off the road during the riots, so local men started to use their cars to bring the kids to school and others to work and into the town for shopping and things like that. They were very cheap and they became popular with many of us who refused to use a bus even when they came back on the roads. Some men saw advertisements for London cabs so they went to England and purchased a number. Others followed and the Fall Taxi Association, the FTA, was set up. It now employs about 200 men and 10 women. The Shankill taxis are fewer, but I haven't had the privilege to get into one of them yet. Maybe someday. This is only a part of Bailferishta, Belfast, and I would encourage people to take a stroll up the falls and the Shankill too, of course, to get a feeling for the real Bailferishta. Some of the great and the good turn up their noses at this area, but being from Bailferishta, Belfast, I can honestly say it's the best part of the city. And I'm not being parochial, honestly. Padraig MacQuitter, Belfast. Thanks, Padraig, for that wonderful post. along you know it's not all hard facts and dry genealogy research here in the green room we also have the crack especially at the water cooler section of the forum where we found our next story by Eileen Massimo called the bishop Mayor Daly and my dad and Courtney Bain is going to read it for us here's a voice that is an example of some of the great humor we get here in the green room the bishop Mayor Daly and my dad. Today is my dad's birthday. May he rest in peace. He was prominent in the Irish American community, being elected the youngest ever national president of the ancient order of Hibernians. He was also well known for his humor and elaborate pranks. In 1966, the AOH convention was being held in Chicago. Before the convention, he met with Mayor Richard Daly, who told Dad that he would provide any help needed. Dad mentioned that his friend, Russell McVinney, who is Bishop of Providence, Rhode Island, and National AOH Chaplain, had asked for a ride from the airport to the convention hotel. 
Dad told Daly Bishop McVinney was very modest. Dad thought it would be funny if Daly would arrange for a couple of police motorcycles to guide the bishop's car into the city. Daly laughed and said, done. On the appointed day, Dad was in his room at the hotel when he began to hear sirens. He looked out the window to see a very long police motorcycle and car motorcade pulling into the hotel. Oh no, my dad recalled, McVinney will be mortified. Sure enough, Dad received a call a little later from one of the highest-ranking Chicago priests summoning him to the bishop's suite. Dad arrived to find a silent room filled with high-ranking religious officials, all with serious faces. The bishop sat with a scowl and a stare. Dad approached the bishop and bent down to kiss the bishop's ring. To wit, the bishop playfully pushed him, and the entire room erupted into laughter. Apparently, the bishop enjoyed his ride. Thank you, Eileen Mashimo of New Hampshire for the good crack. Up next, I'm going to read a post called Love and Tractors. Now, you know, in Ireland, we have what we call an Irish solution to an Irish problem. Well, this post here by Simon O'Flynn addresses just that. Have a listen. Love and Tractors. The following small handwritten note appeared on the window of a hardware store on the west of Ireland. It goes, Woman wanted with a view to marriage. Must be able to keep house, cook, milk cows and be of general help around the farm. Must be between the ages of 25 and 35 years old and be in good health. Must have own tractor. You'll see my name and where I live with Mrs. O'Brien, the store owner. Important, please send on a photo of the tractor. In many parts of the world, I suspect that a mate is difficult to find. In the remote parts of the west of Ireland, this was the case in the mid-1900s. Suitable partners, particularly females, were in very short supply. There was a tradition in this area of matching couples with the help of a third party, such as parents, another relative, or even the local parish priest. After an agreement on dowries and land, etc., the couple involved could then meet. These meetings took place at gatherings such as funerals and weddings and were often overseen by a chaperone. In Ireland, we call that a go-between. Now that we are in the age of internet dating, this situation may have changed somewhat. In Ireland at this time, though, there was a serious attempt to rectify the problem. A way of finding brides for the mountainous men from the West was undertaken in almost an industrial way. The village of Listunvarna on the remote west coast of Ireland was chosen as the headquarters for the operation. Today, for the whole month of September each year, this small town holds a matchmaking festival. This event, originally set up to solve the Irish problem, has now become the mecca for people from all over the world hoping to find a suitable partner. The crack is mighty, as we say, and goes on 24 hours a day for the whole month of September. Willie Daly is the official matchmaker for the festival. This genial bearded sage holds office in the matchmaker's bar on the main street of the town. He has by his side a very large, 
tatty book filled with correspondence from people all over the world looking for that special one. Should advice on matters of the heart be required, he's the one to see. When Willie was asked, why do people come to Listoon? He said, well, there are many reasons. Some are looking for love, others for companionship, and some come to get a laying hen. He tells the story of a frail but a well-to-do 90-year-old farmer who managed to persuade a 20-something-year-old girl to marry him. When asked about the health issues regarding the large age gap in the relationship between the farmer and the girl, the farmer replied, well, if she dies, she dies. Should any Green Room member decide to come to Liz Dune, they'd be very welcome and be assured of a great time. However, if you do come, bring a tractor or at least a photo of one. I feel sure it would help. And that's from Simon O'Flynn, Cork, Ireland. To all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our voices from the Green Room and you got a glimpse of some of what goes on in there. A big thanks to our magnificent readers, Courtney Bain, Simon O'Flynn, Mike Collins, and of course, not forgetting our contributors who wrote the posts that featured in today's show. Joe McLaney, Lynn Wilson-Stola, Jay Shocknessy, Eileen Mishimo, Padraig McQuitter, and Simon O'Flynn. That brings us to the end of our fifth episode on Series 2 on the Letter from Ireland show. A very warm thanks to all our friends from the Green Room. And though I've heard those stories when they were first written and I read them, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to them read aloud and I hope all you listeners did too. The book and this podcast is dedicated to the place from where it came. That is to the wonderful members of the Green Room at Your Irish Heritage. Your connection, friendship and stories make it a joy to be part of this great venture that we have together. So everybody... Slán till next week. That's goodbye in Irish. Slán galair. Goodbye to you all. Remember, listeners, we'd love to hear from you and you can let your comments and check out more at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 205. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called the Green Room. You can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me, and I'll be back next week with another instalment of The Letter from Ireland Show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán Karina. <laughs>